0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Shakespeare series brought to you by MyEntertainmentWorld.ca. I'm your host, Kelly Bedard, as always. But today, everybody, we get to talk about my favorite comedy. I may—I just caught myself thinking I was going to say that it was my favorite play because it kind of is my favorite play. But then I thought maybe I said that when we talked about King Lear, and I can't remember, so I'm going to say it's my favorite comedy. But today we're talking about As You Like It, which I'm completely obsessed with As You Like It. Uh, I think it has something to do with Never Been Kissed, which was my favorite movie when I was nine years old. But we can go into that later um, some other time. But I just, guys, As You Like It is wonderful. And you will hear me talk a lot about why. Um, as I get into this episode where I'm talking with Scott Garland, uh, it's a bit of a longer episode because if any of you have ever talked to Scott Garland, you'll know that you just, you get to go in and then you go off on tangents and, and you just, you get to go in. So, uh, we do that a little bit. We, we go off a little bit, but it's, really a fun discussion. Um actually the first time I ever saw Scott was he was playing uh the dual role of the two dukes in Rarely pure's production of As You Like It back in I want to say it was 2014. Um which was a winterized version. It was very cool. We'll talk about it in the episode. Um, yeah, so Scott is a writer and uh, actor and maybe director, I should ask him that, um, in, again, working in Toronto, as most of our guests are, um, does done a lot of Shakespeare, uh, he was nominated for my Theatre Award last year, not for Shakespeare, for Three Men in a Boat, which is his sort of uh, recurring project that he d- comes back to uh, periodically. Uh, he also does a lot of film and TV work. Um, that's sort of the deal with Scott Garland so uh, I made him talk about As You Like It because he put it on his list of possible things he might want to talk about and I was like yes must talk about As You Like It I love As You Like It now Um, so that's it this is just basically the Kelly enthusiasm episode so have fun with that um obviously follow us on Twitter and Instagram, MyAntworld, you know the drill by now. MyEntertainmentworld.ca is the site with all of our writing and all of our podcasts and all of our interviews for the interview series, because we are in the middle of awards season and that means interviewing dozens and dozens of artists, um, which is just the best thing ever um, and makes this season super fun. I'll stop talking now, mostly so you can listen to me talk even more about as you like it. This is definitely the one where I talk the most. Sorry guys. Okay, see you on the other side. Okay, so As You Like It, um, one of my favorite plays in the history of the world, so I'm very excited to talk about As You Like It. Um, so I like to start with a Wikipedia synopsis. Uh, a lot of them, Wikipedia doesn't even have a synopsis because they're too complicated. As You Like It, it does have one. It's a little long, so bear with me, everybody, but here it is. Uh, According to Wikipedia, the simplest way to explain this plot is that As You Like It follows its heroine Rosalind as she flees persecution in her uncle's court, accompanied by her cousin Celia to find safety and eventually love in the forest of Arden. In the forest, they encounter a variety of memorable characters, notably the melancholy traveler Jaques, who speaks many of Shakespeare's most famous speeches jacques provides a sharp contrast to the other characters in the play always observing and disputing the hardships of life in the country those last bits weren't necessary to the plot basically rosalind forest celia love that's all you need to know scott garland tell me why well one background with shakespeare just to, like get us started why we're listening to you okay and then also what's your deal with that as you like it
1: okay uh well thank you for having me kelly <laughs> My, uh, why me? Why I? Uh, I spent uh, what some might call uh, far too long studying uh, theater. Uh, I had my diploma from Keanu College in Fort McMurray's acting program. I had my degree from the University of Alberta in drama and English. And then I spent three years at George Brown's classical training program. Um, so when you do that many stage programs, uh, you tend to encounter Shakespeare quite a lot. Uh, and in some cases his contemporaries Why me um, I've seen this play performed a, a fair number of times And I've actually had the great pleasure of being In As You Like It in Rarely Pierce production Directed by Rosanna Saracino uh, A few years ago where you and I Actually first encountered each other
0: Yeah, the I first met you I believe at the awards that year Where As You Like It was up for quite a few things yeah. And you came up to me and said I'm Scott, I played the Dukes <laughs>
1: As I called them, two terrible dads. Um, <laughs> yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that's what the play is, two terrible dads. Uh, 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 I'm a selfish actor.
0: <laughs> Just retell the entire plot yeah, from the point yeah. of view you, of your character. It's
1: a—it's that scene from Shakespeare in Love. It's like, what's Romeo and Juliet about? Well, you see, there's this nurse. Uh, <laughs> no, I very much, there's a soft spot in this. In my heart, for this play, I almost said there's a soft spot in this play for my heart.
0: That's (laughs) morbid,
1: though. (laughs) That's morbid. Um, No, there's. I I have great affection for this play. Um, I can't pinpoint one thing. It's just this beautiful mosaic of of wonderful music, wonderful comedy. just very compelling plots uh there's a lot of subversion in how the plot unveils itself which we'll get into later that i really appreciate um wonderful characters wrote oh my god Rosalind is just a phenomenal female hero in so many ways i can go into more detail later and of course like everyone likes jacques and touchstone my god uh it's uh, we get to see um there's there's a uh, in, in Shakespeare literature, they have the two forms of the fool. You have kind of the bottom fool, who is much more of a uh, physical comedy fool. And then in this case, you have the uh, much more um, verbose and thought-provoking fool who who shoots wisdoms like arrows under the cowl of, of tomfoolery, which is also called out in the play. Um, I love the setting of, uh, of contrast between uh, city life and, and humble... Uh, 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 rural living, urbane versus rural. There's just, there's a lot to play with. And frankly, I think what I love about this play is it gives a lot of license to anyone who is uh, performing it in many ways. I mean, obviously all Shakespeare plays and all plays in general should have uh, a huge offer from the playwright to collaborate with whoever's taking on the play. But this one in particular, I feel like the The restraints are a little less there, so I don't know if any of that uh, rung true or made sense to anyone, and I'll probably get uh, shouted out in the comments, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I really love this play.
0: We don't have a comment section, because I don't like feedback. Oh,
1: great. (laughs) Neither do I. So
0: you get to say anything you want. All right, well. (laughs) Don't make me mad, because I love As You Like It. (laughs) This is very important. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Also, great title that doesn't give away the plot.
0: Yeah, and and as far as I can think, it doesn't get, it's not a line from the play, or if it is, it's not one that's repeated over and over again, yeah. like, all's well. Like, it's just, I mean, most of all, not most of all of the comedies are just random word yeah. titles, like, they don't mean anything, so it's hard to remember which is which when you're <laughs> listing them. Um, but it's one of the, I think, least offensive of the <laughs> random... You know, much ado about nothing kind of undermines its own play, yeah. and like they're they're alls well that ends well. Sort of like, well, well, none of this matters.
1: Also, also, this play kind of uh, it, it's interesting. You find uh, critically, there's been divisiveness with regards to the. A merit of As You Like It. And I Wrong. know,
0: gasp! I love it so much.
1: Gasp! Uh, George Bernard Shaw would have some arguments. Boo! But he's dead.
0: I have things to say about <laughs> George Bernard Shaw.
1: We'll save that for our George Bernard Shaw podcast. <laughs> um, uh But As You Like It, uh, many, many people snipe that as being like... The populist side of Shakespeare and the play very much is as you like it this is this is for you because you like it this way right which I, I obviously disagree with.
0: Well it, it, that is an interesting point one of the the one of the things to like about as you like it is that it's so lovely like mm-hmm. it's so likable. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that it's actually one of the more complex tragedies in terms of like Actually, if you watch under the surface where but what's nice about that is that you can watch just the surface and just think it's a delightful, lovely little romp and not worry too much about it. And then you have, it's almost like you could have the option to opt into the deeper story happening and the more complex interpersonal mm-hmm. relationships and the sort of weird melancholy of the rather problematic couplings in the end. Mm-hmm. there There's a lot to mine and, you know, my 12th, 15th, whatever, as you like it, that I've seen still interests me in a way that it wouldn't if it was all really just as you like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first time you see it in a really simple production that isn't necessarily mining all that stuff is still likable because mm-hmm. in, in a way that something like a measure for measure isn't um, because it's so unpleasant that mm-hmm. if they don't really mine it correctly, it's not rewarding in any way. It's not yeah. just entertaining.
1: And, and one of the things you brought up that uh, I also very much appreciate is um, the subplots weave wonderfully in this play. Mm-hmm. Um it, Marked to form in a lot of Shakespeare's contemporaries, you would have plays with uh, multiple plots going on that would have very little in common with each other. I remember uh, when we were doing period study. Oh, Lord. um, I can't remember the play. Uh, But we only did one of the plots because the other one was so easily to extract from it. Um, even, even Shakespeare himself has some problems with subplots. King John becomes kind of a a big rabbit hole of a mess of just like, and then this guy, and then then at one point you introduce like this guard who has a deep destiny who then just (laughs) dies. And then you're, you're, you're sitting there wondering, why did I, why did I watch this? Um, one of the criticisms I often uh, get about Midsummer is, um, you can't have a Midsummer where all three plots, uh, are on even footing. Mm Mm-hmm either the cast or the director or the designer or even the audience will pick a maximum of two out of three plots that are interesting to you. And then when they all come back together at the end, it doesn't feel like they've been in a play together. It feels like we had three plays going on. Glad you showed
0: up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. Everybody's very interconnected here mm-hmm. and everybody is important to everybody else's story. Yeah. Um, I also, one of the things I love about As You Like It is that there's no real star um obviously Rosalind is the star. It's she's in my opinion the the one female character in the canon who controls her entire narrative. Even mm-hmm. Viola gets pushed around by the other characters and moved through her story a little bit more.
1: Mm-hmm. And Rosalind and I mean m- Merchant Merchant of Venice, she takes on more agency, but she's in a position without agency at she, the beginning.
0: She is she's also just a relatively small part. Yeah. Um Rosalind has the most lines in the play. Yeah. Um, but with the exception of of Rosalind, there there is no like where do you put Richard Burbage in this show? You know, like, there, there is no um, your main title guy, mm-hmm. um, and and everybody's really balanced. There are tons of you were talking about the the contrast between Jaques and Shockwies, whatever, and Touchstone. Um, there is no like. This is the great role. This is mm-hmm. a lesser role.
1: It's an ensemble play. It's a
0: real ensemble play, mm-hmm. and and there are so many interesting characters. Um, this is a, a weird hot take. People always laugh at, but Celia is one of my favorite characters in the canon. Oh, my Celia, favorite.
1: Celia. I just love her,
0: um, and well, she was illuminated for me for the first time. One of my first uh, like big memorable moments of tuning into Shakespeare was somebody had bought me a book. Um, that was uh, someone was interviewing an actor who had played every major role in Shakespeare's canon. And it was all these different actors. So like we interviewed McKellen about Macbeth and we interviewed, you know, whatever, sort of going going down the list. And Rebecca Hall, um, who has gone on to be one of the great delights of the film landscape. But mm. early in her career, her father, who's a famous director, had cast her as Rosalind, Um, Actually, opposite Dan Stevens' Orlando. Ooh. Yeah, good old Matthew Crawley. Um, (laughs) But she... I'd never heard of her at the time. I obviously didn't see the production. Um, I believe it was an RSC production in the early 2000s. And she was Rosalind, and she talked at length and really eloquently, and it's just an incredible interview, about the dynamic between Rosalind and Celia, and the complexity of that dynamic, and the weird power dynamics at play... And um, Celia's story, basically, even though she was playing Rosalind, she really sort of tuned into Celia's kind of like this idea that she considers her a sister and a best friend. And she would n- Celia would never dream of leaving town without Rosalind. And Rosalind's plan is to leave Celia behind. Mm-hmm. And the just sort of heartbreak of that and the way that carries into their dynamic in the forest and what Celia says, how she reacts to the whole Orlando deal, mm-hmm. the way that she subtly makes fun of Rosalind... And it just their dynamic is so fascinating to me, and I think that Celia, as the sort of beta friend, um, <laughs> who in a lot of ways deserves not to be the beta friend. She's got a lot more of a level head than Rosalind in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Oliver her aside. Um, <laughs> and, you know that to me resonates in a really fascinating way in a contemporary sense. It's mm-hmm. something I highly relate to, and I just I love her so much, and that's like the weird. Like you'd never say, Hero is your favorite character in Machiavelli, right? Or Bianca is your favorite in, Sh- in Shrew, and that's really the archetype uh, Celia is. Mm-hmm. But but, but she
1: she also great? she continues the the wonderful tradition that Shakespeare constantly puts forward, which is one of the strongest bonds is between uh, two uh, sisterly friends. To two women who grew up together and shared together and grew together and attained womanhood together those bonds he has a deep admiration for and this is no less like even even before we get into the heavy bits of the plot one of the first things celia says is um when uh when my dad dies or or gifts to the kingdom to me i give it to you that's it
0: yeah
1: that's just the way it is
0: obviously yeah. just she wouldn't even think twice about it yeah you're like what and to get into the, the... This isn't
1: Game of Thrones. What's going on?
0: Oh, exactly. And to get into the Dukes, because I would want to talk to you in detail about the Dukes because you played them, but the, there's something really interesting about the fact that Celia is the daughter of the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rosalind's father was this you know cherished guy. And, and then the Duke, uh, Ferdinand, mm-hmm. when he casts Rosalind out, his big excuse is that he's doing it for Celia. Rosalind is eclipsing her, mm-hmm. and she's just like, yeah, that's fine. I love her. Um, but then she ha- Celia has to, she makes this big gesture. She you know, defies her father, who in a good production, she actually does love her father, mm-hmm. and she's connected to him. And then she gets to spend the entire play listening to people talk about how he's the worst, and he's the villain, and he deserves to be cast out and killed. And she just, that's such a fascinating journey for her to go on. And it's, it's mostly subtext. And I just, I, I just think it's one of those plays that, you know, it, it could be a lot of fun. But at the same time, you can sit and delve into Celia's inner journey mm-hmm. for hours and not run out of material. And you can do that. It's not, I particularly love Celia, but you can do it with almost anybody. Mm. Uh, maybe not Audrey. But you may be Audrey. Audrey.
1: Oh, Audrey. I love Audrey.
0: <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a lot to it. Do you have a particular, don't say the Dukes, um, do you have a particular character or somebody that you really connect to in the in the story that you really um, am, are interested in?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, well, Jacques, obviously. But um, I don't know. In, in my mind, uh, there's not a part in this play I wouldn't love. Just because uh, again, because it 's such an ensemble piece, what what appeals to me isn 't any one part, but the whole in which the entire uh, uh, fabric weaves together um, again, you have so many moving parts going at the same time, and what 's wonderful is each part informs the other. Um, a lot of people underestimate this play because it is so uh, appeasing, so appealing so 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 lovely uh, so so pastoral comedy. Um, but what's what's fascinating and appreciating about it is the wisdom that the play uh, gives doesn't come from a place of condescension or, or people knowing better Jacques Wies does not give his Seven Ages of Man speech until he's been fired up and inspired by seeing a fool, a fool, I met a fool! And in it, this, he, he marvels at a fool being able to romantically wax poetical about the passage of time. One moment this and another moment that. We, we ripe and ripe and rot and rot and thereby hangs a tail. Waka waka. And then in the next moment, him and his camp are waylaid by this young... Uh, what they think is bandit with a knife, saying, "Give me your food." And instantly, the duke says, "Put your knife down, and we'll happily feed you." He says, "It's not for me; it's for my dear friend over there. Bring him; we'll feed him too." And afterwards, look, our trouble's not our own. And Jaques breaks into, well, "All the world is a stage, the moving parts." And one of my one of my uh, favorite words of 2017 I learned was that of Sonder. Um, it's an obscure word uh, from the Book of Melancholy, which, again, I think Jacques, as most people would say, kind of embodies. It's the uh, sudden, overwhelming realization that everyone else is living a life as vivid and complex as you.
0: That's very as you like it. That's
1: so as you like it, <laughs> you know? And, I mean, even when we did our production, what I really appreciated that Rosanna was asking of Michael was, uh, Michael Hogan played uh, Jacques and I got to play the Duke. And I cue him up, and then after all of this is unfolded before him, he's gone on such a journey. He says, "Well, all the world's a stage," and then he uses everyone on the stage to kind of emphasize his point, to to to, it, it, to tell them each at what phase in their life they are, and then all of them look outward at the future and to the death. And then we enter with Adam. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Everyone informs a piece of that speech. Everyone informs a piece of this play. And I mean Jacques Jacques's journey is interesting because he goes from a place of, of inner turmoil and and, and and melancholy and sadness. But by the end of, but the journey he goes on is a fool of a foolies. He's ecstatic, he's alive, he's enlightened with all these new possibilities, and they, they stir new things in him. And it's it's not the the speech itself is, is not a, a self-reflection or an inward journey. It's not Hamlet speaking to a council of Hamlets to be or not to be. What shall I do? It is, this is the world we live in. And each and every one of us is on our own program. We're all doing a play at the same time. And we just keep colliding into each other's plays. And it's a weird realization that I, I don't think a lot... Of, of scholars were considering at the time, because every, every philosopher has to begin with the self. I think, therefore, I am. Where am I? Who am I? Where am I in all this? Are you all NPCs in the video game of my life? Well, they might not have said it like that. <laughs> we all know video games got locked away during the dark ages. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that kind of embodies really what I, what I love about those things. Um, where are we? What are, how did we get uh,
0: here? Who, know, who knows how we got here? Um. <laughs> oh, you love
1: Celia. <laughs> I, I
0: love Celia. Yeah, and,
1: and I love every every character in the play. And there's there's so much, not just plot-wise, but also like wink nudge-wise. Like we have a William in the play, a William who, whom uh, whom we have to, to fake scare into running away and and not not being after Audrey.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, uh, uh, there's, there's, uh, I mean, the legend goes that Adam when, w- was once played by uh, William Shakespeare himself, just like carried on on someone's back. He's
0: like, hi, I wrote this play. <laughs> I like to believe he was in all of them in just like a weird bit part, like Hitchcock style. <laughs> yeah. Or how like Sorkin's in the bar in most of his, his movies. He's always like, he's in there. There's a bar scene. He's drinking at the bar oh, or something. Boy. Um, So one of the questions I usually do towards the beginning of these is how does presenting it in 2017, 2018 now, what are some of the ways the play has to change or be looked at in a slightly different way to work as a contemporary piece, if there are any? Um, Well, the
1: the beauty of this play is it plays more with um, archetypes than does stereotypes, which I'm really appreciative of. An archetype uh, being uh, something that uh, invites uh, large swaths of people. It's, it's more universal. Like um, uh, a usurper, that's an archetype. Um, uh, a German dictator, that's a stereotype. One of those is going to be more universally uh, upheld. I feel like As You Like It particularly plays more with with archetypes and stereotypes. I would say the biggest um, thing to adjust is, because this is a pastoral play and we get a very clear separation between city life, court life, and um, uh, country life, uh, rural living, that kind of thing. I think really there's something... Exciting, if you wanted to modernize it or even make make it more appealing and, and accessible to modern life, is being completely honest with your own relationship with nature and what getting away from the city means, or what banishment from the city into, uh, 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 in this case, the forest of Arden. I really love the idea of this all taking place in the winter months.
0: Yes, that's your production. That uh, Rosanna's interpretation was mm-hmm. the rare winter version yes. of As yeah. You Like It.
1: Um, I've, I've seen I've seen autumn. I've never seen winter before, um, and I, th- I think it's I think it's brilliant because what it also becomes by making it winter. Well, first of all, when we did it, we did it in the winter, um, <laughs> and everyone was chilly in the audience. So there's there's no there's no fooling them out of that, uh, and it lends itself. What I really appreciate in that case, in this instance. Is the environment is a character. And so if you if you and, and, and it's and it's full of obstacles, from the first moment that uh, we meet Duke Senior and his band. The first thing the Duke is trying to say is, "All, all is not bad. Like things are good, right? Guys, look where we are." And then he looks at everyone, and they're like, "We're freezing to death. <laughs> we're, yeah. fr- we're freezing to death, and, and we we have no fire." <laughs>
0: totally, totally recontextualizes the speech because mm-hmm. when it's in the summer, it's a little bit like, "Why are you talking right now? You're just mm-hmm. pointing out our environment. Yeah. You're a little bit bragging, like there's thought yeah. uh, yeah. Whereas if it's a rousing you know, you guys all followed me into the woods and you didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm here to try and make you not resent that Mm -hmm. and make you not feel bad about that decision. Mm Um, it, it, it's a, Got a lot more of an interesting context uh, in terms of looking at the history of these characters. It also just plain raises the stakes. To mm-hmm. well, so flee into the forest in the dead of winter mm-hmm. is a decision that one does not take lightly the mm-hmm. way that one might merrily go off to the forest mm-hmm. in the middle of June.
1: Well, it raises the stakes and also gives a, a lovely shade to much of the intentions behind things. I don't like a Jacques who is indignant and angry. The entire way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If he, well, I really loved doing it in winter because again, I, I grew up in northern Alberta and I have a very fond attachment to winter. Uh, yes, it's cold. I get it, but <laughs> I uh, that first forest scene, like there's 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 a stillness, there's a romantic beauty to it, especially during the day. the The sounds you hear aren't overwhelming. They're they're hushed, and then each. If you, if, you, if you hear a distant rustle, it's, it, it becomes suddenly something that you just you grasp to and is beautiful. But that means every speech that is then said has to have an inherent layer of there's a possibility that we could freeze to death. And so Jacques Wee's very much uh, his Seven Ages of Man, again, wonderfully performed by Michael Hogan, it, it has to be empathetic. It has, to be, it has to be openly empathetic to everyone around him and them. And also, like, in the wintertime, I, I love the winter season because uh, when, when, I was, when I was in high school biology, uh, one of the facts they brought up, um, this may have been disproven since then because I'm so old, but um, one of the facts they brought up was um, there are more fights in general in summertime. Uh, we are more inclined to violence when the weather is hotter.
0: Now these hot days is the mad blood boiling.
1: There you go. See, even they knew. Um, <laughs> but in the is Romeo win-
0: and Juliet, everybody.
1: Yeah, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> but in uh, in winter time, and again, like this is this is why I I will support every every holiday around uh, this time of year. Is it's the time that we have to look towards a spirit of cooperation um, for whatever your personal reason, but for the larger reason being, we literally need to warm each other and find light and, and get together because we could freeze to death. And that's what this by putting it in winter, that's what this kind of play, every action becomes that. We have to survive. Um, this is a comedy, folks. This is a comedy. Um, but I mean, also true to form with uh, a lot of the Shakespeare comedies, um, I, I, I once wrote an essay contrasting Hamlet and uh, Twelfth Night. Uh, it was a bad read. It was a poor read, poorly written. I was a snobbish kid in uh, theater school who so was like, why do I have to write things? But one of the things I kind of said was, um, well, true to form, Hamlet starts with a wedding and uh, Twelfth Night starts with a funeral. That's how you know one is a comedy and one is a tragedy. <laughs> and I mean, it's, uh, it's stereotypical to uh, a good... Uh, uh, writing of those forms if we start as you like it with with a kid lamenting the death of his father and having to do chores and hauling wood and uh, and two brothers getting in a fist fight threatening death and then we're supposed to look at this and be like when does the laughter start somebody throw a pie um if if you if I walk into a play and some of the first stuff is is people trying to make me laugh, I instantly get a grip of oh man, this is going to turn real dark, it? and <laughs> it's a it's a sad telltale. But uh, try not to think about it too much.
0: Well, and it is it is you know it's sort of classic comedy. They say that comedies end with marriage. Mm-hmm. It, it does end with marriage, but there is. Something strange about the ending that, to me, a, a good production at least always has a certain melancholy mm-hmm. to it. Um, you know, Touchstone is tricked into his marriage, Phoebe is tricked into her marriage. Um, Oliver is, you know, is this terrible, terrible person who's going to kill his brother and then he shows up and encounters a lion and all of a sudden he's a changed man and somehow deserves mycelia. (laughs) You know, uh, Rosalind and Orlando I will buy because they've spent a certain amount of time together, uh, albeit under false pretenses. But we end with these four happy, wonderful couples and everybody who was an inconvenient presence in the play has mysteriously decided to go off and become a better person somewhere where they won't be bothering us anymore. Well, f-
1: fair enough. I would, <laughs> uh, I would counterpoint that what I love about those facts you just brought up, Oliver's change, uh, the Duke invading and not invading, is um, what I love in this play is subversion. If we, if, we, if every night is opening night when we're doing As You Like It, um, the play, like okay, so you did you did a Wikipedia uh, synopsis before? Um, in a world, <laughs> it's uh, so so. We open on just rebellion has occurred. Essentially, as you like it is the start of uh, of uh, Sopranos or Game of Thrones. Um, there's been a rebellion. The usurper is in charge. Uh, there's been a death of a high ranking official. All is in is not in chaos, but is in uh, in, in disruption. And disturbance. And, uh, you know, it opens and, and they say, like, uh, Duke Senior has gone out to the woods with his, uh, with his merry band, much like England's Robin Hood. You know, you hear that. It's like, oh, my God, this is gonna be an action adventure. You could very <laughs> easily do a cut trailer of just like a banished Duke a son who needs to avenge his father and like again Orlando has that awesome uh, opening bit with his brother where he's just like I have my brother I have my father's blood within me and I have the, the the rage of a man who is instilled with goodly qualities and I will be damned if you let me just ah god you're like oh wow oh huh, man what am I in for um and I mean, they have a wonderful scene. Uh, one of the, the first scene of Act Three is uh, while Rosalind is in the woods trying to like concoct this, just like I will, uh, I will get him to, uh, to to fall in love with me, kind of thing. Like she's just like, "Ooh, I'm uh, chasing a boy," and Jaques is just like, <laughs> "Oh man, what is time?" Uh, and Touchstone's horny for uh, Audrey. Um, while all this is happening, uh, back at the ranch, uh, Duke Ferdinand is beating the crap out of. Um, Uh, Oliver saying like where the hell is my daughter you idiot go into the woods get her back I will I will destroy everything he's fire and brimstone you know we're expecting that this is gonna end with a big battle scene. For for those of us who don't know uh, classical plot structure or whatever, but like this, the there's an alternate universe version. There's a blockbuster version where a producer went, nah, 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 we gotta have we gotta have the banners are called, and then there's a big old fight, and then and then there's like Lost Boys contraptions where like uh, they've got like uh, uh, like it's essentially the Ewoks take down the Empire at the end of this play, <laughs> but. With that expectation in mind First time we see Oliver The last time we saw Oliver he was, he was saying I hate my brother I wish he was dead Please don't send me away I'm sending him away He's in desperate strains First thing we see him He's, he's a changed man And it is Because like you say a boar attacked him And his brother saved him And I mean like The, the symbolism is The transformative power Of Arden Forest um, I don't know if this Holds any water But I, I didn't know Shakespeare's mother Was named Arden Oh Um so there's something there's something magical in that but uh once you cross that threshold into this world and i mean again like one of the most important modern questions you have to ask is what does city life versus rural life embody for me? What does court economics and, and all of these man-made structures and, and s- situations that we've built and invested so much in contrast to when we separate ourselves from all of that? What do we have left? What do we become? And what becomes the values that we hold most dear? And once all of, because all of Oliver's hatreds for his brother, all of his conflicts lived in the city.
0: They're all the
1: money base well they're, they're money based they're position based they're 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 only based upon these these fabricated uh values that we made like he's the first son I, I I have a hatred for my brother that I know not what but it is in my soul but the moment he's transported out of court life and also like stripped of his lands and his titles he's uh he has no reason to hate this man anymore it's gone. It's free. It's open. And once once he's in that place of freedom and openness, what's the first thing he does? He falls in love with your Celia. Cause who couldn't? Who
0: he doesn't know is even
1: Celia. Because she's she's transformed herself.
0: Yeah. She's a poor farm girl named Aliena. Yeah. Aliena, whatever yeah. you want to call her. She's it. alien. She's
1: an alien. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh and and much the same. I mean, it's it- this this is a far stretch to go for something that is as simple as clearly the same actor playing Duke Ferdinand was also the same actor playing Duke Senior, but uh, we don't get to see the final reconciliation but Duke Ferdinand again, last time we saw him, he was he was spitting hellfire, like, every, I'm gonna burn everything to ashes, he's a humorless man he's angry, he's making decisions left and right he's happy one moment, he's angry the next, he's fine with Rosalind then he's like, banish it, banish it, get the hell out of here um, he, he he loves Orlando the wrestler, and then the moment he finds out who his dad is, he's like, "You're dead to me." And it's uh, that man. He disappears the moment he hits the forest. I mean, he went there with Bannerman. He went there with soldiers. But the moment he hits this threshold and meets a, a little old hermit, just turns him the other way, and he says, "No, no, it's cool, man. Why do you want to kill this guy?" It's because like, he's. Uh, it's like no, he's he's fine. <laughs> Leave, let, leave all your worries behind you. Um, it's, one of my, it's one of my favorite uh, sentiments whenever I go, uh, whenever I get to visit the East Coast or Newfoundland is you, 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 throw your, you throw your fears in the sea of no cares, you know? Nature can take all of your burdens away because they're mostly manufactured. And that's really, for me, the heart of why I love this play.
0: There's something in that, in the way that they enter the forest as well. When they run Rosalind, Celia, and Touchstone are coming in, they're carrying all of the stuff they brought (laughs) with them into the forest, and it's just this slog Mm -hmm. that, And you know, one scene, two scenes later, when we see them, they've just unburned themselves of everything, and all of a sudden this energy comes up in this focus... Um, that also, I think, f- folds into... There's the transformative power of the Force, but there's also the transformative power of disguise. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Rosalind especially, but for Celia as well, um, just the power of abandoning all of your own shit. Just, like, leaving it behind. For Rosalind, getting to leave behind all of the shit that comes from being a woman um, and just be completely herself, which is why when I'm a little, I'm still dubious, no matter what you say about subversion, I'm still dubious of some of those couplings at the end. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm, talked mm -hmm. me into Oliver and Celia, but I don't know about Touchstone and Audrey. Well, well, what I also, what I also (laughs)
1: appreciate is at the end of the play, Jacques gets final word on each of those couplings,
0: which you're just like, oh
1: yes, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's there in many ways because it has to be there. Mm -hmm. And, And Shakespeare gets to say, just like, I know, and we'll see what lasts and what does not last. Yeah, that is true.
0: There's a self-awareness to it that Mm -hmm. I find refreshing. I always say that with TV shows i'm i'm f- i'm great if your if your characters are flawed terrible human beings that's that's fine there's an accuracy to that that's great mm-hmm. i have a real problem when the the show clearly thinks they're delightful <laughs> and they're like secretly psychopaths like no yeah. girls or sex in the city <laughs> yeah. don't like don't tell people. me to
1: like these people yeah
0: just stop it those are bad people yeah. why can't the writers tell um, so there, there's a self awareness at the end there, which, which is you know refreshing and makes it a good play. Mm-hmm. Just gives the ending a sort of complexity yeah. that's not it's all good. Yeah. But one of the the reason why I'm I'm sort of on board with Rosalind Orlando in the end is this idea of the disguise, and for her in the time and place that she exists, her just. Talking to Orlando has all this baggage to it. you know mm-hmm. meeting him all of a sudden there's a me meet- and there there this exists in you know contemporary real life as well you meet someone and all of a sudden there's this idea of like, oh, are they a potential mate and then there's all this stuff <laughs> and like people on their best behavior and trying so hard to be funny that they end up not really being themselves mm-hmm. and they, they're so concerned about looking good and sounding smart that they aren't themselves quite the same way as when you meet someone without any pretense of like the potential, and it's just they're a fellow human being out in the world. Mm-hmm. And so when Rosalind and Orlando meet in the forest, she's still got all this stuff in her brain at least, but she's able to leave behind all of the courtly manners, all of the expectations mm-hmm. of what how a woman is supposed to act, and he is able to just talk to a fellow person yeah. without worrying about, oh, how am I treating a lady? And yeah. there's um, a real honesty there that you also see with, like, Orsino and Viola, except that mm. one has power dynamic issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, there's a purity yeah. to this and, relationship it, that I kind of love.
1: And there's is, it's also a wonderful stark contrast to, like, their first meeting after yes. she gives him the locket. And uh,
0: and he can't say a word. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: and it's just so adorable, and it's just you're just like, oh, I've been there. Um, and
0: the, the version in, in the production you did with Spencer, <laughs> he really leaned into that, like, can I not say thank you? <laughs> like just, and I love that because, you know, there is, I was talking um, a few minutes ago about Bertram and all swell that ends well. <laughs> and that, that he's a sort of just like dumb jockey kind of thing in a lot of interpretations. And Orlando has a little bit of that, a little bit of, you know, bad production will make Orlando a very sort of generic, like just like jockey guy Mm. and there's something really delightful and humanizing about really emphasizing that scene and how he doesn't know how to talk to girls and he's just like i don't know Uh, it's it's delightful and then you take all the pressure of possibility away and these two people can connect Mm -hmm. as humans without any of the crap and I just it, I love this play
1: and there's there's, so there's something there's something really sweet in in Rosalind's uh, testings of him <laughs> because
0: at that girl's got some trust issues
1: well uh, understandably so uh, <laughs> you know her uncle did just banish her and her father abandoned her yep, uh, yep, yep. <laughs> yep all the men in her life keep leaving but you know who
0: she can count on
1: Celia, Celia. there we go <laughs> Um, so, I mean, and again, like Rosanna would always uh, ask um, in our production, um, Christina, our Rosalind, um, uh, remember to have the moments of fear and hesitation with regards to each of your actions. There's a good chance that he'll say something and be like, oh, you are not a good match. <laughs> like, in in many ways, Rosalind's attempts to make uh, him fall out of love with Rosalind is also her her means of finding opportunity to fall out of love with him. Mhm. There's there's a real there's a reality in there. But it never happens. They just she falls deeper in love with this big schmuck.
0: Well, and testing him, right? That that's that's the idea of showing all of your um like I have a I have a friend who's just an absolutely delightful, wonderful, totally crush-worthy human being who I stumbled upon his okay cupid profile one time. Ah, ah. And it's the least attractive that He picked exclusively terrible photos. He put all of the weirdest stuff about him right up front. <laughs> and it's stuff that in, in person isn't really necessarily... It's not relevant. You don't know what it. It's not a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And it's charming in its way. But he just... He was like, here's all of my crap. Run if you're going to run. Because I really don't want to get into this and then find out you're going to run. So her testing has this very charming like, here are all the reasons why you're gonna fall out of love with me, and when he doesn't she's like, okay you're, I believe you, and then because she, he's sort of proven that he's not going to fall out of love for all these reasons that she's scared of she's able to let herself fall in return mm. and it's just, it's, it's so lovely
1: oh yeah um, we haven't talked much about uh, Touchstone but he, uh, he has a, he's a wonderful, the, the forest is freeing for him in a very practical way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the first time we meet Touchstone, Celia and Rosalind try to get some foolish uh, barbs out of him. And it's kind of revealed that, um, I believe Celia points out that um, Duke Ferdinand has, uh, has silenced all the fools. He's saying there's no there's no fooling to be had. Fools are not allowed to speak so freely in my court, <laughs> um, which is which is so sad. So the first time you see Touchstone, who's this uh, again? Now we know him uh, in in culture as just like one of the greatest fools, one of the greatest, just like open, ah, like like this beautiful Commedia dell'arte esque wit. Um, the first time you see him, he's he's very mild. He's very mild. he's, he's done up. It's it's sad. It's, it's it's seeing this bursting energy in a, in a in restraints, and even when they come into the forest, like he's, he's burdened down. My God, my God! Uh, and then you get in one of the many subplots. You get to see him just go hog wild and fall in love with a farm girl. And oh my God, everything's wonderful. And uh, I'm gonna duel with this William fellow. He's not actually gonna duel with him. He's gonna fake duel with him. Uh, and he, he goes on his own little adventure and it's just, ah, ah, and, and, uh, one of, one of my favorite things is, uh, one of his best speeches are, is, is repeated by Jacques. So whenever Jacques does a fool, a fool, I, I met a fool. He then does, a, he does touchstone speech in way of, and what was fascinating in our production is, uh, Ben Blaze played our touchstone. And Michael Hogan played Irish Aquis. And so every time he was talking like Ben, he can, like, not perfectly, but almost perfectly imitate uh, Ben's gravelly, like, hey, hey, how you doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, And Michael Hogan would just do it like him. I'm like, that's great.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, and he's really our our sort of literalization of the themes of court life versus... uh, pastoral life. Mm. Um and he meets Corin in the the Shepherd and they have this little back and forth where basically that's his name, right? Corin, Corin the Shepherd Corin
1: yeah. the Shepherd
0: and he he basically undermines all of Touchstone's ideas about like custom and court yeah, yeah. life. And there's this bit about handshaking mm-hmm. um, that is is just such a fac- fascinating deconstruction of all this stuff that we consider very normal, but is total nonsense if you were to try to explain it to an alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it it just doesn't make any sense. And so someone who lives outside of the court system to it's just this beautiful dressing down that is fascinating uh, that Shakespeare was able to write and then present to the court members <laughs> without that and that sort of speaks to the beautiful magic of as you Like it as an you know as you like it. It's, it's a nice it's a nice play and you're gonna like it and enjoy yourself and we are going to undermine everything you believe to be true and point out that your lives are ridiculous. but you're gonna be okay with it because it's funny and mm. it's sweet.
1: Yeah. You know, whenever our Corin uh, was speaking to our Touchstone in that one scene, because that's the scene where where Touchstone is lamenting, like I missed this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. I always wanted, I always wanted our uh, Corin, played by Brandon Knox, to break out into Colors of the Wind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yes.
1: Just, just like you'll learn things you never knew, you never knew, and then Touchstone would be like, what's going on?
0: Karen <laughs> and the Otter are my friends. <laughs> my friends. <laughs> So, like, I want to make sure that we talk about the Duke's a little bit. Oh, okay. Um so as you as you pointed out and, and as was the case with your production, they are often played by the same person. Mm-hmm. Um and the effect of having two characters uh played by the same person, especially two characters like this uh that are explicitly contrasting characters is that you will often find them segregated into good guy bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, Duke Senior is this warm, wonderful person and uh, Duke Ferdinand not so much mm-hmm. uh, he's often presented with like literal dictator vibes mm-hmm. um, like the trappings of a dictatorial society are often put on into the design in the Duke Ferdinand scenes Um, I think there's a lot of humanity to Duke Ferdinand Mm -hmm. That is very closely tied, of course To my Celia-centric interpretation of the text I agree Um, But yeah, so how did you approach this idea Of creating two fully fleshed out characters While also making it clear for the audience This is not the same person Um, And that that they're two completely distinct characters
1: Um, Well, again, working with Rosanna was a big boon Because she, uh, she and I got to Collaborate uh, on kind of the big defining difference between these people. Defining difference? What the hell am I? Um, <laughs> cut it in post. No, uh, I'd say the biggest difference would be pacing. They're both, and again, they're both uh, living in their environments. Uh, Duke Ferdinand, who I got to play uh, first, he's very much uh, a clock changing speeds consistently. Um, and he's uh, and, and everything he does is very decisive. Uh, again, we talked earlier about how how rapidly him, his moods could change and his humors could suddenly shift with the wind. But it's always uh, decision made and go. There's not a lot of room for for gray area with him. He's he's a he's a mind of machination. So it would be keeping that in mind. Uh, just something as as simple as straight lines are as important to him. Directness, suddenness. Uh, if there's any sustainability, it's still and direct. Um, versus uh, versus Duke Senior. I mean, the first thing I, I got to do is walk on stage and, and behold the forest of Arden and dead of winter and just be just be enamored. And there's no directness to that. It's 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 all sweeping motions and, and taking everything in and. And, and exploring a new environment. Everything is a new discovery because none of this is ordered. Everything is everything is, is refreshing. So their environments very much define who they are. Another thing to note is Ferdinand is very much a man who demanded camaraderie and, and service. So anytime he's speaking to someone, he's speaking to them w- with... The full with the full knowledge that they must listen. He's 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 forcing his words upon whomever he is addressing. Versus uh, Duke Senior is uh, is in a, a very different uh, situation. Everything that he does is an attempt to maintain. Uh, is is an invitation. It's uh, for for collaboration. There's patience there, but there's a there's also there's a warm need to to. To make sure to check in with other people, much of what he does is is to to the benefit of those around him um, so something as simple as that with regards to their characters, which I really really loved was uh, you have these two beautiful and, and powerful female characters on stage of which both characters have shadow relationships with both uh, I'm, 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 this is my this is my daughter this is my Niece. Then on the other side is my niece. This is my daughter. So I mean, every time I see Christina, I'm like, "Hello, daughter, niece," because <laughs> I was both. Um, and again, there's so much, so much beautiful stuff to mine in that. So when banishing Rosalind, it's not I'm banishing my enemy's daughter. It's I'm banishing my niece. So you get to you get to layer in that level of, of attachment with what you will. Because they, they, they know each other. They grew up together. This is family you're banishing. And for me, that's that's always, I think, a benefit we have by modern context. is familial relationships, I feel, mean more now than they did back then. And especially with regards to literature and with regards to courtly life, is so much of it was was functionary. Uh, your sire had a position in relation to your family. It wasn't that this is my dad, this is my daddy, this is the guy that taught me how to play cat, fetch. This is the head of my household and I am within that household. Um, yeah. It helped that uh, Ferdinand uh, had a stick. <laughs> a walking <laughs> stick. And, uh,
0: He's got stab that stick. He's got that
1: stick. <laughs> um, and I kept I kept bringing props and costume pieces that not even I, I didn't even just use them. Like I kept giving them around to people. I once gave Ben like uh, here's a bottle of wine, so the touchstone can have a bottle of wine. And then he proceeded to accidentally smash it on the floor of the rehearsal hall. So that
0: seems right. right. Yeah, that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> So the only people that we haven't, unless I'm forgetting someone, that we haven't talked about are Silvius and Phoebe.
1: Phoebe and Sylvius.
0: I so th- these two, like the, the the older I get, the more I see. As you like it, the the more I am taken with them specifically in a modern context, and they sort of like it's probably accidental. It's probably coincidental because it's not possible to me that. Shakespeare would have had insight into this very, very particular phenomenon that feels very contemporary, but I guess is more universal. This idea, to me, their relationship is, um, you know, it's really presented in a lot of bad productions. It's presented with this idea of Silvius as the sweet, lovely guy who follows her around and really she should love him. Why doesn't she love him? That's really not fair. She's such a bitch, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the way it works out in the end, that's a lovely way to look at it. Um, To me, it's most interestingly read, um, specifically in a contemporary setting, with this idea of, like, nice guy syndrome a little bit. Um, She has this fabulous speech where she says to him, look, I like you. You're a nice guy. You, You know, I don't want to hurt you. But I haven't done anything here, and how dare you say to me that I have murder in mine eye? Like, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying is, I don't love you, and you're calling me a murderer. (laughs) And just, I need you to leave me alone. And there's something incredibly contemporary, but also very specifically like the female experience um, Mm -hmm. that that speaks to in a way that has to be accidental because I don't understand how Shakespeare could have gotten it but in a contemporary production Mm -hmm. I always find that dynamic very interesting
1: Mm -hmm. well I mean it's, it's hmm (laughs) <laughs> I'd never I I'd never
0: him, well, I'd, I'd never considered
1: it that way the thing that I always mark in that is that uh, she's she's uh, condemning him for like unrequited love on her and she's like I've shown you absolutely no affection yeah. so back off
0: yeah take and it then, ahead, buddy
1: and then she does the exact same thing
0: <laughs> I need to and, and Rosalind's just like and-
1: what the hell it's like but yeah, I mean, no, that guy likes me it's like No,
0: he doesn't. Well, so well,
1: okay. He's been he's been spouting (laughs) anger at you, and she's just like, "Why are you looking at me like that?" (laughs) Uh,
0: there's there's so much interesting stuff there. For sure. Like, first of all, Phoebe's experience of the world is that she has this guy following her around, telling her that she's the most perfect woman in the world, and every she can have anyone she wants. Mm -hmm. And so, when she's met with rejection for the first time. That's new to her, and she would ex- she expects Ganymede to love her because that's her experience, and it actually speaks to um, it, it, the way they get together in the end is, is really a trick, but the reason it's it's tolerable is this idea that she's learned some empathy for Silvius through her experience that mirrored the same thing with Ganymede, right? Um, she's learned that he can't necessarily she says, Stop following me, stop loving me' and he can't. That's not a power he has. Mm-hmm. Um, just but it's it's sort of the exact flip. He doesn't have the power to stop loving her, but she doesn't have just the same way that she was trying to explain to him that she doesn't have the power to start loving him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she hasn't done anything to tell him that he should be following her around. And yet, he won't take a hint. He won't listen. And so it, it's such an interesting flip and an interesting journey of empathy that she goes on. But at the end of the day, you can't invent your feelings. No. You can't. You and, and there's an interesting point about meritocracy, this idea that Sylvia is a lovely guy. He never does anything wrong. And Phoebe, the whole play, has all these people telling her... Um, you know Sylvia's is great what are you doing um, and I well, love I mean, Ro- Rosalind's speech about yeah. you are not for all markets yeah, like yeah, I yeah. say that all the time <laughs> like, yeah. like, you
1: are not for all markets yeah. you should take the guy
0: right but that's <laughs> and it's it's mean and it's funny and I, oh, I love God. how mean some of the female characters are in this movie <laughs> yeah. this movie this play
1: there's, there's some shade thrown
0: yeah I love it so much it's... but the it's just she doesn't have the power To just turn around and be like, oh, okay, I guess I love Sylvius now. You know, no matter how deserving he is, no matter how convenient it would be, (laughs) she's attracted to Giddybe. That's the end of the... And so I think that she develops an empathy for Sylvius, and that's why she's able to settle for him. Also, there aren't that many people in the forest. Yeah. Uh, But... It, it, it is an interesting thing to view through a contemporary lens, this idea of this guy who says, love me, she says, no, leave me alone, and he doesn't take the hint. Mm-hmm. He, he, as, a, as a contemporary woman, you can't not see that, I mm-hmm. don't think, when you see this play, and it has this, this contemporary res- resonance that is really remarkable, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I also just think Phoebe's great, and let's not call Phoebe a bitch anymore. Yay! She's not a bitch. I don't think so. She's not ambitious. I love the, the how can you tell me there's murder in my eye? Like that's yeah. so such a mean thing to say. And you say you love me, but mm-hmm. that's that's cruel to call me a murderer. <laughs> I didn't do anything.
1: Yeah, no, I uh, and and I mean, I I love it because once again, it's it's an extra thread in the grand tapestry they're sewing, and it's beautiful. And again, like it's all about that final scene when Rosalind says everyone's mm-hmm. getting married now. I'm mm-hmm. matching up all of these people. And I mean, Audrey, uh, Phoebe and uh, Silvius uh, kind of get to be. Um, <laughs> they get to be a lovely contrast to a different love. Because, like, Orlando's kind of doing the same thing. The only difference is uh, his, the, the, the object of his affection is not there, and the object of his affection happens to feel the same way.
0: Mm hmm. Well, that is true, and, and that's Act 5, scene 2, the sort of, like, great as you love phoebe meet as you love S- S- uh, rosalind meet scene. Um, a lot of times, most of the time I've seen it, it's staged in this sort of, um, like, square, mm. where people would will turn to the person they're talking about, and it sort of gets, it's almost like a, te- a game of telephone. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. line gets passed along, yeah. down the line from Sylvius, who does the flowery po- poetry, all the way to, as I love woman <laughs> um you know and and that seems beautiful but it, it, it's fascinating because it really does reflect the fact that these people are all kind of in the same place and the only thing that's um diff- different between each of them is that it is the degree to which the person that they love uh feels at the back or is aware of their love um notably oliver and celia are not participants in this scene because they're situation is easier it's simpler it's a two idiots meet and fall in love happens every day situation mm-hmm. um and these the, all these other characters are sort of locked in this sort of giant pentagon of love that is they're all in relatively the same situation it's kind of cool
1: <laughs> and yeah and uh yeah i don't think anything actually there is no and yes <laughs>
0: Well, I would end there because generally just, yes, you're right, is my favorite place to end anything. Yeah, um, but I have to end all of these on the same question, oh, okay. which is, at the end of the day, yeah. what's As You Like It about?
1: Uh, at the end of the day, As You Like It is... That's yeah, comedy.
0: <laughs> is it, though?
1: At the end of the day, As You Like It is...
0: Dump them again.
1: No, I'm just <laughs> I'm an actor. I, I I recite words. I don't speak. No, um As As You Like It is a beautiful mosaic of several forms of love. It's a play that's themes are bigger than the plot being unfolded. It's a pastoral comedy that highlights the healing power of forgiveness that the play I feel puts forward is one of our more natural tendencies that we must return back to. And that forgiveness is possible for anyone if given in the right circumstances and in the right setting. And also that true wisdom is found in empathy. When putting your focus outside of yourself and collaborating with others. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to plug?
1: Um, the director uh, of my production of As You Like It is directing uh, a Brechtian play with the graduating class of George Brown at the end of their season in April. I highly recommend seeing that as both her, Rosanna Sarnatino. And uh, that class are going to be making some very exciting work in the future, and I look forward to that. I recommend getting a ticket to the My Entertainment Awards coming soon, as it should be a very exciting time. Thank you again for uh, being diligent. And uh, you announced those today, didn't you? Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yesterday. Okay. Oh,
1: yesterday. Good Lord. I'm slow. I'm just, I'm just glad for the uh, excuse to hang out with Kelly Bedard.
0: <laughs> well thank you very much Scott
1: thank you very much sorry if I went on and on
0: so that's our episode for today thank you so much for joining us be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays in the meantime follow us on Twitter, Instagram all that jazz myentertainmentworld.ca is the website thank you so much for tuning in I'll see you next time